Welcome, everyone. My name is Diane Ebley, and I'll be your host for this virtual book tour with Frank Viola and George Barna on a topic that's extremely important to every believing Christian because it gets to the heart of what God intends the church to be and how each person should function as a part of it. So we're here tonight to talk about the church, and both these authors have a passion for what God says the church should be. George Barna is the founder and directing leader of the Barna Group, a research and resource source firm in Ventura, California. He's written 39 books and has been called the most quoted person in the Christian church today. Frank Viola is an influential leader in the contemporary house church movement. He's a nationally recognized expert on new trends in the church, holds conferences on the deeper Christian life, and is actively involved in planting New Testament-style churches. And we'll be talking about what these look like in a little while. He's written eight other books on radical church restoration and has been involved with organic house churches all over the U.S. for 20 years. As you can see from their backgrounds, both these men care deeply about what the church should look like. And from the response we got to the worldwide survey we did before this virtual book tour, so do a lot of other people. We received more than 600 questions from all over the world just in the past 10 days. And on this call, we're going to attempt to answer not only some of the most asked questions, but the questions that are key to understanding the book and the purpose of the authors in writing it. Now, before we begin, I'd like to give a web address where you can go to get the book if you don't yet have it. And I'd recommend you get more than one book, because as you listen to Frank and George tonight, I'd like you to be thinking about who else in your church needs to read this book. Perhaps you're part of a Sunday school class or small group Bible study, and your whole group can study this book, because this is a book to not just read, but study. And it has the potential to revolutionize not only your life, but your whole church. So please write down this web address and go there after this call to find out how to get the book. Tyndale.com, that's T-Y-N-D-A-L-E dot com forward slash Pagan Christianity. And Pagan is P-A-G-A-N, Christianity. Later on, I'll also give you another website where you can get more information, including some very special resources the authors have prepared just for listeners of this call. So please keep a pen and paper handy. All right, let's start, Frank and George. By finding out what triggered this book, which is a question several people ask as well, including someone named Onisimo, I think it's pronounced, from Zimbabwe, Africa. What inspired you to write Pagan Christianity, Frank? And then how did you become involved, George? Well, thanks, Diane. Uh, I think I'll be speaking for millions of Christians when I tell this story. I became a Christian at a young age, and I spent many years in the institutional church. Uh, I was a faithful churchgoer. But like many Christians today who attend traditional church, I became spiritually disaffected with church services. Uh, I was also growing increasingly bored. And at the same time, I kept noticing a huge disconnect between the churches that I was attending and the church that I read about in my New Testament. Consequently, I took what was for me a terrifying step. I stopped going to church altogether. Hmm. I gave it up for Lent. But I didn't leave the Lord, nor did I leave Christian fellowship. In fact, by the Lord's grace, I stumbled into an experience of church life that trumped anything I'd ever witnessed in the institutional church. And that has held true in my own life for the last 20 years. Anyway, uh, that experience led me on an odyssey to discover how the Church of Jesus Christ developed into the institution it is today. So in the year 1997, I set out to explore where our Protestant church practices came from. And I'll just say this, that study blew the circuitry in my brain. Uh, I I was arrested by what I discovered. It was a first-class eye-opener for me. And uh, the study lasted five years, and the result was a book entitled Pagan Christianity, And the first edition was self-published in 2002, and I believe that both of my book fans read it. 
at the time, I believe that no Christian publisher in their right mind would have touched it, let alone published it, so that's why we self-published it. Uh, in fact, if you would have told me back then that a major Christian publisher would one day publish the book, I would have thought you were stark raving mad. Either that or you were living on a fantasy island. Mm. Consequently, when I found out years later that Tyndale was interested in publishing the book, I went into shock for two days. Mm. And on the third day, I was euphoric. And the reason for that is because I realized that scores of Christians would be able to hear and consider the message of the book. But I'll admit something else. Uh, when the book was actually printed, it dawned on me that George Barna and I had just put a noose around our necks and jumped. <laughs> and so uh, on that high note, I'll let George talk about how he got involved. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Frank, because you, you say a noose around our necks, and uh, some of my friends asked why I was wearing a bullseye wherever <laughs> I went. You know, so same I bet. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the, the way that I got involved in the project was um, – I guess it was in about 2003, I started doing a lot of research related to how the church in the United States was changing, because having spent the past dozen years traveling around the country, nine months, roughly nine months out of every year, with my family doing seminars in churches, consulting with churches, uh, you know, just being in hundreds and hundreds of churches around the country every year. Uh, it, it became obvious that things were changing in some very, very significant ways. And so over the course of the next uh, two or three years, began doing a lot of extensive research related to the nature of those changes. And those eventually came out in the book Revolution. And one of the things that I was looking for while I was writing Revolution was documentation in one place that would help me to understand where did all of this come from? Right. Because when you read the book of Acts, and then you read, or, you know, when, when you go to churches, uh, conventional churches all over the country, and study what's being done there and how ministry is being done, there's a disconnect somewhere. Yeah. And so I never was able to find such a book while I was researching and writing Revolution. After Revolution came out, one of the people who read the book got in contact with me and said, boy, this is really interesting what you've come up with, talking about how things are going to change so radically over the next 25 years. Have you read Frank Viola's book, uh, you know, Pagan Christianity? I'd never heard of it. And so... I, I, I'm absolutely shocked that you never heard of the book before, <laughs> George. No offense intended. Uh, most people never heard of most of my books either, so, you know, we're in the same boat. The guy that said that was one of my two fans. There so. you go. Yeah, well, he, he hit the right note with me. So uh, I was able to get a copy of the book, read it, and just thank God that such a book existed uh, because it really did answer so many of the questions I had about church practices, church behaviors, the impact of all of these things on people's faith, and so much of it conformed to what we were finding in our own research about what was going on in churches and in people's spiritual lives. So at that point, I contacted you, Frank, and you know, talked about the possibility of maybe updating the book, adding some things, uh, and, and trying to get the book before a larger, maybe even a more mainstream audience than it had had at that point. Mm. And uh, once you agreed, then, uh, you know, went to Tyndale and talked with them about it, because uh, we've got this Barna Books line where we're trying to put out books that are raising conversation about mm. what does it mean to be a Christian, what does it mean to be the church, because that's really what the revolution of faith that's taking place in America today is all about. It's not about what church do you go to. It's about how do you embody the church? How do you be the church 24-7? And so I was excited when we had the opportunity to work together on this, and Tyndale agreed to publish it. And now I'm thrilled that people have the opportunity to get their hands on this information, because I think it really is in many ways not just eye-opening, but potentially life-transforming. Yes, and George, that brings me to ask you, you've had quite an evolution yourself uh, in thinking about the church, um, evolution, revolution, you know, but can you describe this and, and how you see the church now? Well, you know, over the course of time, the 20-plus years that I've been a believer, 
I've been on this consistent pursuit for two things, uh, you know, I mean, other than Jesus, obviously, we're constantly pursuing him, but but in terms of, of, of the concepts of the faith that I really want to understand and grapple with and incorporate into my life and understanding, uh, they would be truth and transformation, and, and you can't have one without the other. But in that search for these things, of course, I've done uh, hundreds and hundreds of nationwide surveys of the American population, numerous surveys in churches and among different faith groups, conducted seminars in churches around the country, spent a lot of time in churches and talking to people. But the thing that consistently troubled me was that the surveys consistently showed that there's not much spiritual growth taking place across the country. It's not that we don't have good people involved in ministry. It's not that people's minds and hearts aren't open to growing. There was just something wrong with the process that was keeping people from growing to be the people that God intended them to be. And so, you know, for myself, having been a pastor at a large church, having been an elder in several other churches where I chose not to be on staff, having been a teacher of teachers and pastors, having been an active participant in churches in the various places around the country where we've lived, it was so frustrating for me. But the final straw for me was as our children were growing up, and right now they're all adolescents and teenagers, but watching them grow, and as we would come home after church services and church events, talking with them about what they were experiencing and what difference it was making in their life and how they were going to incorporate that into how they plan to go out and change the world for Christ. What I found out is that they were having a lot of fun, but they really weren't growing. Now, partly that was my fault because that's always a parent's responsibility. And so I recognized I needed to step it up. But I really needed the ministries that we were interacting with to partner with me in that process. I didn't feel that was happening. So as I stood back and looked at all the issues that the church has in our country, issues of leadership, issues of priorities, issues of evaluation, issues of worldview, issues of engagement with the culture, issues of discipleship and spiritual growth, issues of worship, all of these things and more, what I basically did after having immersed myself in church culture since I accepted Christ while I was in grad school, I stepped back and took four months simply to pray just to ask God, would you please reveal to me what I need to do to be the kind of servant that can really do something about the problems that you've revealed to me through the research and the relationships? What can I do? And it it led to a refocusing of our company, the Barna Group, in terms of looking more at some of the alternatives, faith alternatives people are pursuing, trying to understand much more intensely the impact of the media on people's beliefs and values and lifestyles and faith. Uh, We went from a company of well over 100 employees, popped it down to about eight employees, Um, you know, looked much more consistently and deeply at how do we help people to understand the importance of ministering to children. So there were major changes all across the board. Mm. One of the personal changes for me was leaving the conventional church and starting a house church. Uh, which we can talk about later if you want, but that has been a major shift in my own experience with God, my family's experience with God, my experience with a valid and viable community of faith. It's changed everything about my life. Mm. So I'm continuing to try to explore what does it mean in Scripture when it says that we have freedom in Christ. Right. Because that's really what I want people to understand if we're going to be transformed If we're going to grasp God's truth, yes, we need to know his words inside out. Yes, we need to be an accountable community. Yes, we need to be worshiping and growing. But we also have to understand that the freedom that God gives to us to to explore these things and to become all that he meant us to be. Mm, Very good. Who were your most influential personal mentors who led you to the realization that the way we do church is not really biblical? Well, I mean, you know, I can talk about that, and then probably Frank can too. Um, there, there are a number of people, and I learn from literature. That's my primary way of learning. So I've had a lot of mentors, uh, some of whom I've never met, some of whom I have met. Uh, Robert Banks is one of those individuals. We have one in common. Oh, there you that go. That was my number two. Was it really? Yeah, okay. 
Yeah, and, and you know, I've had the good fortune to meet Robert on a few occasions and talk about various things. Uh, but he wrote a number of books looking at the early church that were very significant in challenging my own thinking. Larry Kreider is a, another individual who has been involved in rethinking what does it mean to be the church. Uh, Peter Wagner has been a good friend over the years and has written a number of things that have really caused me to rethink stuff. Um, but really, I would have to say the most important thing I've read that has just gripped me, in addition to the prayers, has been the Bible. Uh, that, that's just been absolutely key, and I don't mean that to be simplistic. But for me, when I get confused, which I get often, the, the best place for me to turn has always been back to God's Word. Yeah, well, I, I was uh, stunned to hear Robert Banks' name. Many Christians today don't have the foggiest idea who the man is. And uh, like you, George, I've been profoundly influenced by him. He wrote a book entitled Paul's Idea of Community. And even to this day, it's quite old. Uh, it was written in the early 90s, I believe. But even to this day, it's hailed as a classic among scholars on the first century church. And uh, Robert's a retired New Testament scholar. He used to teach over at Fuller Seminary, and now he lives in Australia. But just a great man and a, a great contribution. The other person uh, is no longer living. In fact, I never met him in person. I was just a child when he passed away. But his name is T. Austin Sparks, and he was a um, 20th century author and speaker in England. And he put out a, a great wealth of material, mostly books and spoken messages. But he is the man that I give credit to for coming up with the term the organic church and the organic expression of the church. Mm. And uh, just one kind word about Mr. Sparks. He had probably the greatest insight into Jesus Christ and God's eternal purpose and of what the church really is in the viewpoint of God than anybody I have ever read. Mm -hmm. uh, and if any of you, you who are listening can get a hold of anything written by T. Austin Sparks, he's not the easiest man to read, but if you can plow through his, his, his writing style, there are gems upon gems, riches of Christ, that I have not heard anyone else share. And so he was a tremendous impact on my thinking when it comes to what the Church of Jesus Christ really is. Mm -hmm. um, very quickly, each of you, who would benefit most from reading Pagan Christianity? Well, you know, I think a lot of people could benefit from it, but I think in order to benefit from it, you have to come to the book with a mindset, a particular mindset. And by that I mean you have to be willing to consider things that may not be comfortable. And so you have to read this book with a desire to know and follow what appear to be biblical ways of being the church, the biblical ways of experiencing and expressing faith. And so if you've got that openness, that desire to really honor Christ in everything that you do in your life and in all the experiences that you facilitate through your life and your ministry, I think the book would be beneficial. I think also there's a, a group of people I know that we found in our research who are frustrated by the absence of, I don't know, passion and freshness in their own faith journey and maybe even within their dominant community of faith. And they're looking for something that will help them get to another level or another dimension of their faith. And I tend to think that this book might give them some of the encouragement or some of the, the stimulus to take some risks to consider some new things about how to deepen their faith with Christ, how to expand their understanding of God, how to see differently what the church could be and how they could contribute to that. And so I, I think those are, in general terms, some of the kinds of people that might benefit the most from this. Frank, you, you have other thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I, I, think, I think you're dead on right there. In fact, uh, one of the things our listeners may be interested to know is that there is a Surgeon General's warning in the very beginning of the book. And it essentially says, do not, do not, under any condition, read this book if you are perfectly happy with the way church is done today. 
If that describes you, give this book to Goodwill immediately. Studies show that this book can be damaging to traditional thinking. And uh, and that really is the case. Uh, if, if my mail is accurate, and I have no reason to doubt it, people are saying that the book is absolutely blowing their mind because they have never been told so many of the things that we address and that we raise questions about. Uh, I, I think of three people who would benefit uh, from this book the most. One would be Christians who know in their gut that something is wrong with the way we do church today, but they're not exactly sure what it is. And uh, that is one of the most frequent comments I get, George, from, from readers. Is They're saying, you know, I've been going to church for years. Some of them say I've left church X number of years ago. I always knew something was wrong, but I couldn't put my finger on it. And this book has given me language to communicate what it is. It's given me insight to answer that question, and I feel set free. And also feel that I now have permission from the Lord to experiment in new ways. Uh, and that's very encouraging to me whenever I, I hear people say that because we want people to feel liberated in the Lord uh, on the basis of what Scripture teaches and, and what Jesus and the apostles taught. The other uh, group, I think, would be Christians who want to be educated about the origins of our modern church practices. And this is something that I know for myself. I had no idea uh, about where what I did every Sunday morning came from. Didn't even think about it. Thought never entered in my mind until sometime later, and uh, it was as if new creases in my brain were formed, and I was beginning to ask questions I, I never had before in my life. So, you know, those who are curious, those who want to be educated about the origins of what we do, certainly will benefit from the book. And I guess the, the third group would be Christians who are longing for a richer and deeper experience of church life. And I have a notion that that would be most every Christian who is in touch with their spiritual instincts. Somewhere deep down inside their heart, their spirit, they're saying, there has to be more than this. There's got to be more than just going into a building, sitting down, listening to a sermon. All that's great. Maybe I even like it, but there has to be more than this. And uh, let me add that pagan Christianity, very intentionally and deliberately, does not answer every question about church life and church restoration, nor does it address all of the issues. It's part of a series. And as George mentioned before, um, Revolution, I would say, was the first book in that series. And other books will follow this. And so consequently, readers need to understand when they read the book, because undoubtedly we touch on various subjects that we intentionally don't develop, they need to understand uh, that this is really the initial statement are one of the initial statements in an unfolding conversation. And I'm just excited that, uh, George, you're going to be putting out more books in the Barna line. I'm going to be putting out more books as well. And I'm absolutely ecstatic to see that we are living in a day that is very unique, that a conversation is happening now that has not been allowed to happen for many, many years. And I just think it's exciting. And you mentioned that it is a conversation. And... One of the reasons the publisher and the authors uh, invited people to ask questions ahead of time is that we want this to be a dialogue. George and Frank are opening up the discussion by, do by documenting the uh, historical roots of our church practices in their book, which most of us haven't even thought to question, uh, to uncover the fact that most of what we do is rooted not in the Bible but in pagan practices. And the title of the book is Pagan Christianity, and it's rather unusual for a book title to have a question mark there. So that's the reason, right, for the question mark? Well, yeah, you know, part of the reason for that is that it, it's a strong title. It's, it's kind of an in-your-face title. And without that question mark, I think we had the fear that people would feel it was an accusation against the church, as if this were intentional. And, and really, this isn't about making accusations. I mean, the idea is, yes, we want to get people to question things, to go back to God's Word, study things, figure things out. We just want to do what's right before God. And so, you know, the purpose of the book, I'd say, is, is you know, there are several purposes, but some of the key ones would be, first of all, to inform people so that they really know the truth about things. And then, secondly, to stimulate that dialogue. 
And, uh, you know, as, as you know, Frank and Diane, I mean, dialogue is best fostered by raising questions, not just by making statements. So I think that question mark is, is an important element in people understanding what this is all about. Absolutely. And I would simply add that uh, we are not calling Christians pagans, <laughs> and we're not saying that Christianity is pagan. But what we are saying is that, and it's really a question, could it be, is it possible that much of what we do for church today did not originate with Jesus Christ, the apostles, the New Testament, but it originated from other sources. And that's one of the things we point out in the book, is that much of what we do for a church that moves from our leadership to our services, to the way we worship, to the structure of the church, to the building, and what the building teaches us on down the line, much of it came out of Greco-Roman pagan customs and non-Christian religious traditions. And so uh, you need not fear. We're not saying Christians are pagans. Uh, and I have to say that because I've actually had mail that came to me saying, are you, t are you calling me a pagan? And my answer to that is absolutely not. And, uh, uh, see, see, you're more magnanimous than I am. I'm saying I can't do that yet. I don't know enough about you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and I'll just make a note here that you footnote your sources. There's hundreds of footnotes in this book, and many books, hundreds probably in the bibliography. I didn't count them, but but just I think Chapter 5 alone has like 209 footnotes. So you are meticulous, Frank, in how you, in George, and how you documented all of this. So... I I'm, I want people to know that you you didn't just start ranting and raving. You were meticulous in how you documented everything that you say here. So um well, and you know, that's Diane one of the things that really attracted me to the book originally was that this was not just some wacko coming in from left field with a bunch of his own ideas. This was somebody who had actually taken the time and made the effort to track down a lot of very obscure things. And it's part of the reason why perhaps there aren't a whole wealth of books like this is because this is not easy stuff to get information about. And so I was, you know, as a researcher by training and by trade, I look for, if you will, the sanctity of the source. I want to know that what I'm being given is something that's reliable because if it's not, I don't have time for it. If people want to spread their personal opinions, that's fine, but I'm not that interested in that. I want to know what is the historical fact as best as we can put it together, and what does it mean? And uh, so that, I really appreciate that about Frank's work. And actually, that was one of the questions that was asked. Uh, Lois wanted to know what primary sources you were able to use to base your research on in writing the book, and was there information that was new um, you mm. know, that previous researchers or writers um, you know, hadn't brought to light. So, well, uh, that's uh, an excellent question, and I would say just off the cuff, there are basically three main sources that um, we used to document the findings of the book. One would be firsthand materials from the church fathers, the reformers, and the frontier revivalists. And the reason for that is because those three groups of people represent three key time periods when most of our church practices were invented. Uh, a second one would be hundreds of scholars and church historians. And one of the things that I really appreciate uh, about the book, and I say that soberly because I use it as a reference myself, but all the quotations from church historians and scholars some of the wisest things that I've ever heard said. And, and incidentally, much of the book is quotations mm -hmm. of what other people are saying uh, who are experts in the field. And then the third uh, source would be numerous theologians, <clears throat> many of which are evangelical theologians. Mm -hmm. And uh, so really what this book is, it's, it's a compilation of an entire library. I think uh, there are approximately 300 books listed in the bibliography, and as you mentioned, there are over a 1,000 footnotes in the book. And, and the reason for that is because we wanted people to know we're not making this up out of thin air. We're not blowing bubbles. 
We're not uh, building air castles. This is rooted in hard, solid, unmovable historical fact. And then what we try to do is we, um, George and I, we draw conclusions and we ask questions about what the research suggests. And then we leave it to the reader to decide what he or she should do with it. And that has caused a few people to be frustrated. Uh, some of my mail is, sounds like this. Uh, Frank, how come you guys didn't tell us what to do with this information? And we felt that would have been a mistake. It would have been premature because, you know, A, we don't want to lead people to adopt, you know, our solution to the problems that we point out. We want them to contemplate this before the Lord. We want them to seek the Lord about it. We want them to go to the New Testament themselves. And we want them to find the mind of God. And uh, and then we will, uh, as the Lord helps us, put out other books that will give our two cents or three cents of what we feel may be some uh, viable options. And uh, so that was very deliberate on our part. But I think uh, as for anything new in it, that would be for the reader to decide. Uh, Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. So I'm sure that everything that's been said in the book has been said in some place by somebody somewhere but i think it's a good point too frank because you know when somebody says is there anything new in here i can tell you the first time i read the book uh, there was any, there was something new on every page that i read and so you got to be careful talking like that to me george <laughs> <laughs> but let me just let me just come down here from this high <laughs> no i you know because i i'm not that well versed in church history and, of course, a lot of the things that are in this book are not the kinds of things that you get in the Church History 101 or 201 class. So, oh, that's true. you know, I think for a lot of people, much of what's going to be in here might give them the same initial reaction that I had, which is, are you kidding me? <laughs> is, is this true? You know, and then because of my own research bent, you know, going back and trying to find through as many of those resources as I, I was able to track down just to double check, and find out, my gosh, that is right. Mm. You know, it, it it's really a mind-blowing experience. It mm. is. And, you know, one of the things that, uh, if anybody already has the book, you'll notice that every chapter ends with a section called Delving Deeper. And I love this about the book because that's where you answer the real-life questions that people would have and have had right. when they read the book. So just as we're doing in this virtual book tour, and in a minute we're going to get to more of the questions that were asked, but you're not afraid to tackle the tough questions. But you are exposing a lot of sacred cows, and that's why I encourage people to go to Tyndale.com, T-Y-N-D-A-L-E.com, forward slash pagan Christianity, and get, again, not just one book, because this is not a book that you just read and put it on the shelf. This is a book you need to read with other people. So get several books or get other people to buy books with you so that you can be studying this book as a church, as a body, a community of believers who want to embody Jesus Christ here on earth. That's what it's really all about, isn't it, Frank and George? Absolutely. Yeah. Right on. And along those lines, John and Jim and several others in our worldwide survey asked, when did church become a location rather than who we are? Mm. Wow, that's an excellent question. Um, it seems to have started around the very late 2nd century. Uh, as far as we know, Clement of Alexandria is the first Christian to use the term go to church. And that's a concept that um, no Christian in the first century would have had. For them, the church was a community of people who gathered together. It was not a place to go. And so the early Christians would not have understood that language. Uh, now, when Constantine, Emperor Constantine, emerged on the scene in the early 4th century, he started his building program. And church buildings went up all over the Roman Empire. And that's when the edifice complex seeped into the Christian psyche. And uh, I personally think that the history of the church building is fascinating, and we trace it in the book in great detail. The short of it is that we Protestant Christians have never recovered from the idea that the church is a building. Uh, I've often said that calling a building a church is like calling your wife a skyscraper. Uh, the church is the, is the bride of Jesus Christ. I think more importantly, we discuss how the social location of the church influences the church itself and how she functions. 
Uh, I love this quote by Winston Churchill. It's in the book. But he said, first we shape our buildings, thereafter they shape us. Mm. And I think one of the most uh, alarming points in that chapter is how much money we Christians spend on buildings every single year. It is obscenely astronomical. And uh, George has done some interesting research on that very question, and he's added it into the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, right now we've got probably on the order of somewhere around $5 billion, that's billion with a B, dollars worth of building programs that are taking place in churches mm-hmm. around the country right now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, boy, you know, you just think about all the difficult issues that we've got going on in the world, all the challenges that people are facing, all the ministry opportunities that are out there, and what could be done with $5 billion. Right. You know, it's kind Mm -hmm. of mind-boggling. You know, and and when I think about this question about, you know, when did the church become a location, uh, I I think part of the answer to that also, or or maybe another way of, of, of transitioning from that question is, why does the church remain a location and i think part of it's because we live in a consumer society and so we're so used to and we're constantly encouraged to consume things that we're now even at a place where we think about faith as an item of consumption Hmm. and so in america and uh, you know I, i pray that this isn't the case in guatemala city and in africa and some of the other places where i know people are listening from right now but uh, part of the difficulty is that people, when they consume faith, no longer perceive that they need to embody that faith. Instead, they just go someplace and they get it. They purchase it, they experience it, they talk right. about it, they watch it, but they don't become it. And so that makes it so much easier then for church, quote-unquote, to become a place to go because it's the ideal marketplace for consuming religion. Yeah, well put. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's you ought to write a book, George. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Well, this this brings me to a very good question asked by Gurn and others. Why were these non-Christian practices instituted in the church? Was it from ignorance or defiance of biblical truths? Wow. I mean, we're talking centuries of deviating from the biblical model. If what you're saying is true. So how did this come to be? Well, uh, contrary to popular belief, I actually did not live in the first century. Uh, <laughs> but but I can I can <laughs> I can ascertain some of the things that happened by uh, those who did. And uh, I I think a constant struggle that Christians have had for the last two thousand years is to live in the tension of influencing the culture without being taken captive by it. Uh, One scholar said in the process of replacing the old religions, Christianity became a religion. The great historian Will Durant said it this way, Christianity did not destroy paganism, it adopted it. And I don't think uh, any of this was malicious or done in defiance. A good example, to my mind, would be in the book of Acts. When you read Acts chapter 6, Luke tells us that a large number of Jewish priests became Christians, and slowly those ex-Jewish priests brought into the church of Jerusalem their legalistic baggage. They began to teach the Gentile Christians in other places that they had to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. All 613 laws, by the way. And uh, the problem grew so bad that a church council was held to resolve it, and you can read that in Acts 15. Well, a very similar thing happened in the Christian faith during the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries. Many ex-pagan philosophers, orators, and priests were becoming Christians. And when Constantine became emperor, overnight, virtually everybody became a Christian. And they brought straight into the Christian faith their old paganistic mindset and practices. And we tell the story of how this happened in the book. Uh, one other thing to consider, I think, is that next to the Word of God, uh, as far as I can tell, the most powerful thing on this earth is religious tradition. It is monumentally formidable. And Jesus himself said it. He stood in front of some Jewish leaders of his day, and he uttered these words, You nullify the Word of God 
by your tradition. And that's an arresting statement. And so consequently, we absorb these things by tradition. We pick them up by habit. And uh, I think one of the challenges of every Christian is to continue to be before the Lord and continue to critique what we're doing so that we uh, can be in touch with whether or not we're influencing the culture, redeeming the culture, or being held captive by the culture. And uh, so in the book we raise that question, and and I, I guess if I can juice it down to one question, it would be this. Is it possible that history has repeated itself and we have enshrined our religious traditions over the Word of God? That really is the summary uh, question in the book. Mm. And then that kind of leads, okay, you asked that question, and, and so the key, uh, key question comes from George and several others. So how will this book help me in my walk with Christ? Mm. Mm. Well, you know, pro- hopefully in, in several different ways. I, I think certainly one way is that we want the book to confront people to make them think. Because so often what I've found in our research is that as Christians, we go through the motions. We like to be in a place where we don't have to think because there are already so many challenges, so many agendas, so many obstacles, so many opportunities that we have in our life. If we can find a place where we don't have to be thinking very deeply or, or, or significantly about what's going on, it becomes a place of comfort for us. Hmm. But our faith is not necessarily to be an element of comfort in our life. It's to be an element of transformation. Transformation means that you need to change in very significant ways, and change, by definition, is never comfortable. So we've got to have something that will push us over the line of comfort into the zone of discomfort where we're going to have to think. And so what we want people to do here is to be thinking about the nature of their church experience, to be thinking about whether or not they are truly as passionate and intense about their relationship with Christ and their experience of Christ as, as could be, thinking about how is the Holy Spirit real in our lives is that just a phrase that we use? We just finished a study last week where uh, we, we looked at people's relationships. And one of the things that we discovered is among most born-again Christians in the United States, they, of course, claim to be disciples of Christ. They claim to know and love and serve God. But when we ask them, what's the most significant relationship in your life, most of them didn't even think to say, God or Jesus. You know, so we've got this whole mentality where we've almost boxed God into something. We want you to think about that. And not only do we want this book to make people think, I think it'll help us in our walk that way, but secondly, hopefully it'll put us on our knees. We've got to yeah. go back and pray Amen. to God. We've got to pray to Him to forgive us for forgetting what this relationship is all about. Mm for forgetting what it means to have freedom through Christ, to have a deep, meaningful relationship with God, to ask him to forgive us for our mindless acceptance of many traditions that have been passed down to us, right. not out of bad intent, right. but, but simply out of ease and comfort. That's right. And to, to pray to him that we would have an open mind and open heart to the things that he wants us to understand and to pursue so that we can have a more significant relationship with him. I'd like to add a point to that, George. I appreciate your answer very much. There is a concept among evangelical Christians, and it's a flawed concept, and I would challenge anybody on this. The concept is that while the Bible speaks a great deal about how to live the individual Christian life, it's virtually silent about the church. And therefore, we can create the church in our own image. It doesn't matter what we do for church. God doesn't care. It's the Christian life that's important. And I challenge that on the basis of the New Testament. Uh, if I could use an analogy, uh, I would use the one of uh, a native habitat. Every living organism has a native habitat. If you remove an organism from its native habitat, it will die 
or its natural instincts will cease to function. Uh, now, the New Testament, interestingly enough, teaches that we Christians are a new kind of humanity. We're part of a new creation. Uh, Paul says we're new creatures in Christ. And if that's the case, then just like every other creature in God's universe, the Christian also has a native habitat. And the New Testament is very clear on what that habitat is. It's very clear in its teaching and its example. That habitat is a shared life community, and that shared life community is called the ecclesia. That's what the church is. It's not a building. It's not a denomination. It's not a service. And neither is it all the Christians in the world. That's the body of Christ. But the church is a shared life community. Now, what happens when you remove a Christian from his native habitat? And my answer is, his spiritual instincts, his or her spiritual instincts, will begin to die. <clears throat> and just like any creature that's removed from its native habitat, its natural functioning will uh, begin to cease. And, and I think this is the, one of the reasons why over one million adult Christians in the United States leave, <clears throat> excuse me, leave the institutional church every year. Uh, one leadership expert, Reggie McNeil said this, a growing number of people are leaving the institutional church for a new reason. They're not leaving because they have lost their faith. They're leaving the church to preserve their faith. Mm. And so, so the point being is that the Christian life must be lived. It was designed to be lived in a corporate expression of the body of Christ. It was designed to be lived in a community that is under the headship of Jesus Christ and not a man, not a human being. And one of the things we say in the book, in the very beginning of it, when you open it up, we give the motive for writing it, and at the very end, when you finish the book, if you, if you got that far and you've recovered from it, uh, and, and you're, you haven't fallen out of your chair and your upper teeth haven't fallen out, uh, if you've got that far, it, we repeat this again. And we simply say this, that there's only one reason why we wrote this book. We are trying to clear away much of the debris and the clutter that's hindered Jesus Christ from being the functional head of his church and that has suppressed the church from being the habitat that God designed her to be. And uh, I just know this from my own experience. When I found the habitat, and I, all I mean is a group of believers who were living as a community and trying their best to make Jesus Christ the head of that group, it literally changed my Christian life, and I've met hundreds of other Christians that have the same testimony. So I think there's something to this. We cannot separate the Christian life from the ecclesia. They go hand in hand. And the New Testament never divides the two. One is the habitat. It's the environment in which we live. You take the Christian out of that habitat, and you erect something else that's foreign to it, and you're going to have a lot of dysfunctionality. Mm. Well, that that leads me to men, want to mention to people, uh, make sure that they know about some very special resource materials that you're making available along these lines. Um, these added resources are going to help you most if you get the book, of course. So, again, I suggest to people listening that they get more than one book so that you're reading it with other believers in your church who are willing to wrestle with these issues so now if you go to Tyndale.com forward slash Pagan Christianity, you'll be able to order one, two, three, or even more copies of the book. But I want to let people know that at that website also, you're going to be able to get two other resources that are only available to those listening to this virtual book tour, either on the live call or the replay. And these resources were developed by the authors to help you implement and apply these ideas prayerfully in community, in your own life, in the life of your church. The first is a special bonus chapter that was written by Frank called The Four Dimensions of the Church, in which um, he answers the question that so many people have asked in this worldwide survey, which is, if the institutional church is not what Jesus Christ intended his body to look like, as we've been saying, what should a biblical church look like? So that's one of the resources, The Four Dimensions of the Church, you can download that for free at Tyndale.com forward slash Pagan Christianity. And the second resource you'll find there 
is a link to a discussion guide to the book, Pagan Christianity. So you can get several copies of the book now and download and print out the discussion guide, and you'll be able to discuss this book in a small group in your own church community. And I highly recommend you do that. So again, that website address is Tyndale, T-Y-N-D-A-L-E dot com forward slash Pagan Christianity, and you'll find the links to get the book and the download and the free bonus chapter and the free discussion guide for the book. Finally, one other website I'd like to mention, uh, because we're, we have more questions we're going to answer tonight, but there's many, many more that uh, we won't get to tonight, and Frank has graciously uh, said that he will answer a lot of these questions at www.pagankristianity.org. So on that site, you'll be able to see other questions answered that we could not cover in this interview, plus a wealth of other materials such as other interviews that the authors have done. So this is a site you'll want to go back to periodically. So um, I just wanted to get that in. We do have some more questions that I wanted to have answered. But um, Now, this is a very important question from Jim, who's a pastor himself, and it sounds like he's read your book. Jim writes, as a current pastor in a traditional brick-and-mortar church, what is your suggestion for writing this institutional ship that you describe in the book? Well, let me take first crack at that. I think, as I alluded to earlier, maybe step one in this is to make sure that you approach this information with an open mind. I don't think you can really get the benefit of this book unless you are willing to read it by first putting aside your ideas about church practices, traditions, assumptions, even put aside some of the seminary training that a lot of us have had. And and then secondly, in addition to reading the book, be willing to go back and take a look at the Bible, get into God's Word, because, I mean, that's where the proof is in all of this stuff. Check the historical documents. You know, do your due diligence on all of this. And then once you've read the book, you've, you've gone back to Scripture, you've checked historical documents, then I think you're well prepared to compare God's intent for his church hmm. with the early church practices and contemporary practices, what's going on today. And, and when you can put those two beside each other and see what the differences are and do that, with a mind now that has had the opportunity to go back to Scripture, to go back to historical documents, to read through, you know, this book, and have an understanding of the context of why that gap exists. I think it's at that point, then, that you have the opportunity to really grasp where things stand and to do maybe a fourth thing that would be useful, which is to pray. To pray that God would give you discernment, to pray that he would give you wisdom, to pray that he would give you direction. You know, listen intently for the voice of God in terms of what does all of this mean? You know, because, I mean, if you're anything like me, this is going to blow your mind. And so you, you, if you go into it with an open mind and you wait for God to give you some direction, then I think you're not only going to get that, but then there's a second dimension to all this. And that's that if you are, in fact, a leader in God's church, based on what you know, you are responsible for bringing God's people more yeah. appropriately into his presence. Right on. Yeah. And so given what you have now discovered through this process, this journey that you're on of trying to be pure in God's sight and trying to bring other people into his into his presence in that same dimension of purity, you're going to have to make some tough calls, but that's what leaders do. Yeah. Leaders bring about change. Leaders are the ones who facilitate transformation. A leader's job is to make people uncomfortable, not for its own sake, but to make them uncomfortable, in this case, to bring them into rightness with God. And so ultimately, you may come to the conclusion we've got to change in very radical ways, some of the things we've been doing. Maybe you won't come to that conclusion. I can't tell you what God's going to tell you. But I think you've got to be open to the possibility that God will show you things yeah. that you had not expected and that your response has to be 
as a leader of God's people, mm. I have to take them to this place. And I'm going to get shot at. I'm going to get criticized. I may get fired. On the other hand, you may be loved. You may be tolerated during this process. But the only thing that should matter to you is that you do what God leads you to do yeah. as a result of this journey. That's right. You know, in that connection, um, I got a letter from a pastor last week. And every, every I would say every week I get letters from pastors. Um, uh, some are not so kind. Uh, others are uh, absolutely shocking. And uh, here's one that I would put in that category. Um, it's very short. He says, I am a pastor in the, and he mentions the denomination, for many years, I have felt restless, unsatisfied, even disconnected with how church is done. I had some ideas and feelings to support me, but nothing as concrete as, if, as you have provided in pagan Christianity. This book is one of the few that has truly, that has truly revolutionized my thinking and perspective. Where do we go from here in his hand for his kingdom? And he mentions his name. I get about one or two letters just like this from pastors a week and of course the other ones aren't so <laughs> kind but it, it tells me that there is a resonation going on among men who are serving in the pastorate where they are opening up their mind and their heart they are getting in touch with their spiritual instincts and they're saying yes something is not right there has to be more than this and i just applaud this brother i tell you i i uh <laughs> i almost cried when i read it i mean it's just so moving and uh, he is genuinely wanting to know where this is all leading. So praise the Lord uh, that it's having that kind of effect on on some of these people. And that brings us to, you know, your book talks a lot about, and we've talked a little here in this interview, but your book talks a lot about what the church should not be and do. But let's talk about what it should look like. I think my favorite parts of the book uh, were when you described some of the meetings you call an organic church on pages 78 and 79, pages 240 to 241. I've been in some of those types of meetings, and every one of them stands out in my mind as memorable. And I might add, that's the kind of church I attended as a brand-new Christian when I was a teenager. Wow. And I think that those early experiences of God at work through every believer laid a very firm foundation for a bedrock sense of God's reality for me that maybe I I wouldn't have had otherwise. I, I hear people who sort of grew up in the church, which I did not. Um, I became a Christian at age 15 and then went to these kind of meetings. They wrestle with things that I never had to, um, I think, because of that experience. So you call the kind of church the New Testament describes an organic church. So what do you mean by this, and can you paint us a picture of what such a meeting might look like? Well, you know, I can probably identify a few characteristics. I know Frank, you know, even in the book, describes some of his experiences. But I think there are a number of attributes that you would find in an organic church. Uh, one is that it's it's not a church that's pre-programmed. It's, it's really designed to be a community of people who at a very much, very much a grassroots level are trying to experience the presence of God, uh, who are trying to express deep and intimate and, and meaningful things about their own life, their feelings, their experiences to God, uh, people who want to give God the opportunity to break through all the clutter that we suffer with in our lives to really reach us with what he wants us to know. You know, but but an organic church is one where Everyone is involved in the process. Right. It's not for the paid professionals to do their professional activity. And I don't mean to put down people who are paid for ministry, but but again, just going back to Scripture, that's not what ministry is about. Uh, you know, an organic, an organic church is uh, one where everybody ministers. Everybody yeah. has been given gifts. Everybody has been right. given a ministry. Everybody has been given opportunities to use those gifts to help to transform other people's lives. An organic church is one that really strives to be consistent with God's Word, not worrying about 
what are other churches doing? What does the world expect us to do? What do we feel comfortable doing? But what has God ordained for us? Um, An organic church is one that focuses on transformation in people's lives. You know, one of the characteristics of the authentic church is that it is a group of people who demonstrate fruit in their lives as a result of what Jesus is doing in their midst. And and so it needs to be a place that isn't comfortable just being comfortable, but they've got to be getting beyond themselves to really bear fruit for the kingdom of God. Uh, An organic church is one that pushes the notion that we are always the church. We are a 24-7 collective of disciples of Jesus who wherever we go, we represent God and we represent each other as the church. And, you know, I mean, in our own church here, I mean, we we came to adopt kind of a mission statement uh, where we say we want to live a slow life. And slow is an acronym or an acrostic. I get the words confused, but, you know, each letter stands for something. And so slow means that we come together to serve in Christ's name and in his honor. Uh, L means that we will be known by the way that we love other people and the way that we love God. O stands for the fact that we will obey what God has commanded us to do, no matter what the price would be. And W stands for worshiping God 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. That he created us for the purpose of of knowing and loving and serving and obeying and worshiping him. And that's all that we want to do. And so when we come together as an organic community, our desire is to enable and empower and encourage each other to do that very thing. Mm. Excellent. Well, we do talk about the organic church, organic church life in the book. Uh, it's only tangential, though, because our, our main focus is on, you know, what the church is not. And uh, that's one of the things that the sequels uh, that will be coming out, the other books that will be following this, will go into great detail on. Uh, what is organic church life? What does it look like? How do you know it? How do you start it? How do you become a part of it? Uh, and how do you sustain it? Boy, that's another question. Uh, that needs to be answered. But anyway, I would just add this one little footnote to what George said. Uh, I have been in hundreds of what I would call organic church meetings, and uh, some of them were wonderful. Some of them were decent. Uh, some of them were just horrible <laughs> if if God's people in that church did not prepare for that meeting. Uh, and when you have an institutional church, everything runs seamlessly every week because there's a program. But when uh, every believer is dependent on seeking the Lord and coming to that meeting to give, and not just to sit as a as a pillar of salt, uh, listening to someone else, then there's a responsibility put on everyone to pursue the Lord during the week. But some of those meetings have been drop dead glorious. And uh, just to very quickly give you a picture of what it could be like, uh, typically when a meeting is just off this earth. What you see is you see a group of people, uh, typically in a home, all of whom are full to overflowing with Jesus Christ. And they are sharing one after the other in all sorts of creative ways. And it is so full, that meeting is so full of life, that people are interrupting one another. And if you read 1 Corinthians 14, you actually find this stated in the text. Uh, and, and, and Paul gives instruction on that. But this meeting is so overflowing, and yet, if, if the Lord's people are properly equipped and they prepared well that week, uh, there is order, there is harmony, there is a theme that will emerge about Christ that was unprepared ahead of time in many cases, and visitors, when they see this, what's happening is they are looking for the person who's leading all of this. And the remarkable thing is, there is no such person. But yet there is. But he's invisible. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ working through his body by the Holy Spirit. And the result is you see an assembling together of the parts of Christ. And what is revealed is the living, breathing Christ that lives in us, that we know, that we love, that we serve. And I've watched unbelievers come to those meetings and nobody preaches to them. 
Nobody gives the gospel. Nobody gives an altar call. But they hear Jesus Christ coming from the different members of his body in beautiful, glorious, creative ways. And at the end of it, they fall down and say, I don't know what this is. I don't know what I'm feeling. I don't know what I've just seen. But God is here, and I want to give my life to him. I've seen that on a number of occasions. And the interesting thing is if you open up 1 Corinthians 14, you find Paul saying the exact same thing. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up, Frank. When I was doing the research for the book Revolution, one of the things that I did was I studied the revolutions around the world that have been successful over the last 500 years. Mm. And one of the things that I discovered is that to have a genuine revolution, which is what I think we're talking about taking place here in in the body of Christ, a genuine revolution is characterized in part by purposeful chaos. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, the the conclusion that I came to is efficiency is tremendously overrated. Hmm. And yet when you look at so much of what we try to do in our organized religious activities, one of the hallmarks of a quote-unquote successful event is that it was very efficient. Hmm. I think you even mentioned earlier it ran like clockwork. Well. I don't know that that has anything to do with blessing God and blessing God's people. You know, I think what you're talking about, about the spontaneity that emerges when God's spirit is orchestrating what happens is really the key. Mm. Absolutely. Very good. Well, on that note, (laughs) speaking of spontaneity and clockwork, we did promise people this would be Uh, up to 70 minutes long, so we will have to end, but the dialogue will continue. It will continue at Tyndale.com forward slash Pagan Christianity, where you can get more resources, as I've mentioned, and also at uh, PaganChristianity.org, where Frank will continue to ask questions, and you can continue this dialogue. This has been the virtual book tour for Pagan Christianity, Exploring the Roots of Our Church Practices by Frank Viola and George Barna. And this book is available in bookstores worldwide. The website you want to check out tonight is Tyndale.com forward slash Pagan Christianity to pick up one, two, three, or more copies to share with others in your church. As we've been saying, this is a book that sparks dialogue, that sparks prayer, that needs to be processed together with other believers. And then you can go there, too, to get the bonus chapter and the discussion guide at Tyndale.com forward slash Pagan Christianity. So read the book, discuss it with others, and see what God wants to show you about who he means you to be in community with other believers. Frank Viola and George Barna, thank you so much, and I hope our paths cross again soon. God bless you all.